I'm James Norrington for Investors Chronicle. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Frederick Gregard, who's the CEO of the Cardano Foundation. Cardano launched in 2017, founded by Charles Hoskinson, who was a co-founder of Ethereum. Its crypto coin is, is, is the ADA coin, which has a $50 billion market cap, which makes it the fifth biggest crypto asset, roughly about the si- a sixth the size of Ether. Coin, interestingly, is named after Ada Lovelace, a 19th century mathematician who is recognized as the first computer programmer and is the daughter of the poet Lord Byron. Anyway, it's a fascinating project, Cardano. Its mission is to make the world better for all. Uh, Frederick, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here and I'm looking forward to, uh, to having some good discussions. Huh? Excellent. Well, in a short sentence then, for people who, who haven't heard much about Cardano before, what is the project and could you sum it up and its mission? Sure. So uh, Cardano is an open financial operating system. The intent of the system is economic identity to the billions around the world who don't have it. And we will do that by hosting decentralized applications that manage identity, value, and governance. So if you go one step deeper, because, you know, this is obviously big, and there's a lot of things under the hood, you can think about it like this, that the Cardano blockchain is built to make the world work more fairly and efficiently for everyone by simplifying processes and improving transactions across all industries. And if you go one step even lower than that, you can think about that the world today is actually operating in a split system or multiple systems. So we have the developing countries and we have the developed countries and we have all sorts of maturity of that. Could you imagine a world where all the richest people in the world uses the same system as the poorest people in the world and both groups have a better system than they had before? For that to happen, you need to have a unified system, which gives you the opportunity to have identity, which is immutable and permanent, to manage money, because money is ultimately an expression of power, an expression of utility, and you need to be able to have a word in the governance. And that basically is a big thing. We can dig into that later and around democracy and so on. But if you don't have a saying and if you don't have the ability to kind of have a word in the governance and actually be able to vote and give your opinion or even give your vote to somebody who votes on you because the topic is too complex, you probably will never get to a fair system. So that's that's interesting. So so you're um, CEO of of the of the Cardano Foundation, um, and you, you're part of. I've got this right. The Cardano project is, is split between it's it's three main elements in the partnership. It's between a company called IOHK, which is to do with tech and engineering, and Emergo, which is the commercial aspect of it. It's quite interesting. Um, how is um, Cardano developing? You know, particularly with with a view with the for profit element and and your role in in the in sort of overseeing the governance of this. Because obviously, I, th- I think uh, Charles Hoskinson left Ethereum because he disagreed with Vitalik Buterin um, on strategy, uh, particularly around the for-profit element. So I just wondered if you could give us a bit of color around, you know, your role in in the governance element vis-a-vis sort of Emergo and IOHK. Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right. Originally, there was this uh, trinity of three entities, and there was, you know, quite clear guidelines about who's doing what and and, and why. In the meantime, uh, a lot of war has uh, gone through, and a lot of transactions have happened on chain. And I think actually we have more and more entities who's already now engaging. And you can even argue or discuss, you know, is it three? Is it four? Is it seven? Is it fourteen? So how many entities are actually, you know, already now adding real value uh, to the project? But um, I like to think about it like this, that the the role of the foundation is to look beyond the balance sheet, to look beyond the generations, to really think about how do you actually build 
principal architecture or principal systems for the generations to come. And to do that, the first or biggest hurdle of, uh, let's say, worldwide adoption of a decentralized architecture is really around ensuring two things. So how do we ensure that we are de-risking the risk, and we can speak about the risk if you want to, of using a decentralized architecture? And how do we ensure that the educational level, so the understanding of what is actually possible, the art of the possible, and where does it make sense to use uh, a system like Cardano? Those two things is, you know, the top two things we are focusing on in the foundation. Again, so for real newbies, they'll be wondering, you know, sort of in the most basic sense, what what does blockchain and open technology enable people to do in the mm. real world economy and i think there are examples with the cardano project in agriculture in in finance in government uh, in government uh, structure and it's it seems to me a lot of the, the it's about people being able to control their own data when they interact in the economy um, as opposed to passing data and control of their personal identity online to big tech companies um, i was wondering if you could explain a bit more about that what's what's unique about the project how it helps the real world economy and why this is something which is going to to feed into you know with some examples of, in agriculture healthcare finance i think you've listed on the website how this project is changing the world and why it's something that people should sit up and take note yeah um so sorry about that i sometimes get a little bit ahead of me and i don't always know who's listening and who catches <laughs> what and why and obviously you're the best one to know your listeners so i think what bitcoin really did oh well, let's start with the internet the internet made the world a lot smaller it allowed us basically to communicate and transact with about anybody around the world instantly and and then made the world small now then bitcoin came along and allowed us to do p2p transactions close to instantly that meant that we could cut away some of this institutionalized trust layer which allowed us to deal with people we never met in other countries across thousands of miles we could send goods and there was always somebody in the middle whether that was a lawyer or a bank or something like that who was kind of mitigating the trust gap because we never met the person or we never met the entity. So it was the first time ever we could actually transact close to instantly without having these intermediaries in between. What Ethereum really proved, which is you know, equally amazing, was the ability to, uh, to model cash flow patterns. So for those of you who are not bankers or, or investment bankers or in, in finance in general, what that basically meant was that we for the first time had the ability to basically do what we call um, liquidity formation outside capital markets. That basically meant that we could, you know, come together and do more advanced uh, financial transactions, uh, which normally was, you know, only the top bankers or the top individuals or the top companies was able to do that kind of finance. And there's a reason for, for you know, for why was that around consumer protection and other things? But what it really proved is that we moved away from this very, you know, uh, royalist or very, you know, you know, you have to be allowed to do certain things to a more decentralized, a more democratic, a free way where we could actually suddenly give access to people who never had access to these things before because they didn't have the right education, they were not born in the right country, uh, whatever reason that was, be right. So this is about, you know, the battle against the centralization and the elite, right? And then going into, you know, uh, democratizing access to capital markets and what that would look like. That also did come with a lot of problems, as you probably have noticed. So nothing against Ethereum as a system. I, I really enjoy that. I think they've really done massive work for our ecosystem. But there are some big problems around interoperability. So how does it actually 
bridge into the existing capital markets, um, sustainability. So not just sustainability in terms of what everybody's speaking about today, you know, how much energy consumption and how good is it compared to, a, to another system, you know, is it saving the planet and all of that, but also sustainability in terms of how sure are we that the ecosystem will also survive in five years' time, 10 years' time, 20 years' time. So when we think about this decentralization of, of these computers who's actually running these protocols, how sure are we that people will be incentivized to actually maintaining the security, the operational efficiency, but also the you know, standard you know, uh, operations in the future if we build something uh, who holds real value on a network like that? So in many ways, Cardano Tech took three steps backward and said, okay, from an academic perspective, how do we solve some of those large problems uh, we saw with the first and second generation blockchains? And how do we make that even more inclusive for the whole world and how do we make it even more secure and how do we bridge it into a world where we accept that the world most likely would not be made on a whiteboard but the world is already in full functions since you know centuries right and there is nation states and there is regulation and there is governments and there is voting systems and there is identity already but how do we actually upgrade all of that so we can get to a place where everybody can be operating on the same system. And more importantly, for the people who don't have access to all of these systems as we take for granted, how do we actually give them access to that? So if you look at what we've been doing in Ethiopia, for instance, in Ethiopia, uh, you know, you can, you know, love or hate uh, developing countries, right? I, I kind of really, I'm very impressed about how they're leapfrogging in terms of technology and other things. But what we're basically doing there by giving teachers and students uh, and so forth access to an identity in the educational space is the, is the precursor for something who might look like a national identity in many countries. We give them the ability that if you're coming from a small country uh, where maybe it's not an Ivy League university or something like that, how do you actually prove that your exam is real? How do you actually prove that you actually did do the, the sweat and the hard labor and you did all of those hours which is needed to do that. If you are the Ministry of Education, how do you actually go in and actually check, uh, you know, which of the small schools is having the best chemistry uh, classes so you can actually get the economics of scale of the teacher? Because the systems normally are economically incentivized that the teachers, if they're measured on giving the highest grades, they will obviously give the highest grades. And this is some of these biases we see in normal systems we're trying to get away with in the blockchain uh, ecosystem. So this kind of uh, identity play is directly, if you go into the US, uh, will be really value adding into the new travel rule, where suddenly, you know, if you move more than X amount of dollars, right, there needs to be an identity key to your transaction. And suddenly you are thinking, oh, hold on a second. So I'm forced to use banks and, and financial intermediaries again, right? So it's exactly kind of the same play we are looking at, right? It's just around identity. And then when you go into agriculture and all of those things, the biggest problem is that at one part in the time, we will meet the physical world. We will have to go to the field or to the tractor or to the production lane or wherever that is. And where digital meets physical world, huge problem, right? Because this is where, you know, things get physical and so on. IoT. And the first thing you need in IoT is identity. You need to know what is that machine. You need to know what is that farm. You need to know those things to bring that trust into a digital world, right? So, so there's a couple of those things who kind of actually, it seems like they're super far away, 
but actually they're in the same social operating system or financial operating system. So that's internet. We're talking about internet of things here. Um, that, that sort of puts this project, um, uh, uh, you know, that there are several sort of listed companies, listed businesses, centralized businesses that, that you're potentially very disruptive to. I mean, uh, uh, this, would this make you a competitor of potentially for or a risk for a company like Amazon or, or for Alphabet uh, and, and certainly for centralized financial institutions, banks, um, intermediaries? Um, you know, this this is this is potentially quite threatening for their business models and, and therefore the people who, who own who have a stake in those companies, perhaps. Yeah, we, we easily get a little bit into a political situation and a little where we also speak about cannibalization. So the way I think about it is that uh, in the future, there will only be two kinds of companies. There will be the companies we see today, which is very much AI powered, machine learning, very centralized, top down, shareholder uh, value optimization companies. And then there will be the, the blockchain version of that. And I think that if you would have a, a blockchain enabled alphabet, competing against alphabet who's not blockchain enabled the blockchain enabled alphabet will win every single time in the future why is that well if you think about alphabet's business model and of course we this will be like probably like days long into you right but if you think about mm. different business models in alphabet's case for instance right their the unique value proposition is really to 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 kind of to really fast take complex astronomically big data and tear that apart and give you an answer on a search, right? Um, but the quality of that search really depends on two things, the incentive behind the search and the quality of the data. Those two things is a huge issue, actually, because we know for a fact that the business model is incentivized by people buying attention from you. So when you're searching, you're not getting an unbiased search on what you want, right? You're already due to the way that the machine learning is working in the back end and the business model, you're already, you know, being, you know, you're seeing something which is not unbiased. The second part is the data set they're using is the data set from the internet. And due to the, you know, uh, it's basically free today to put anything on the internet, right? So all the data on the internet, you actually don't know what is true or what is not true. Both of those issues, uh, third generation blockchains actually is solving. Um, so therefore, I would, I would, I hope, I trust, I feel that the future will be very simple: a blockchain-enabled company and a non-blockchain-enabled company. And the blockchain-enabled company will win every single time because it allows us to put the individual in the center, and it allows us to have multiple data sources put into one system, which we can actually trust. So we actually will be able to know what is true and what is not true. In terms of um, interpreting the information you get from these data systems, I was quite interested um, reading on the website. Um, talk of talk of the role that game theory plays in 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 your decentralization model. I wonder if you could uh, explain a little bit bit more about that as, as, as simply as you can. <laughs> yeah, of course. So I will use a blockchain example here because there's a lot of game theory in the Cardano project, right? But I think. Uh, a blockchain example, which has been discussed a lot in the media and is probably also then easier to relate to uh, if it's been a lot in the news lately, right, is this notion around Bitcoin that there is some of these or there was some of these mining conglomerates, right? So because of the the, the way Bitcoin work and the security around Bitcoin around that, you know, the more CPU power and by that the derivative of the electricity you get into it, the more likely that you actually get um, a mining reward. 
So um, that basically actually forces a centralization from a game theory perspective. When you look at um, our protocol features around how we run our, um, um, you know, our staking, right? So we have a you know proof of stake system compared to a proof of work system. We actually have gone in and kept some of those things. So what that basically means is, it's not just because you have a lot of money and have access to electricity and so on. It doesn't necessarily mean that you always would just keep earning money. So it's not just a curve who goes up into the you know the unending world, right? So the more resources you throw at it, the higher likelihood there is that you actually get paid. So we actually kept, and we call that the K factor, right? So we have something uh, which is a factor, which is basically saying, you know, the system is optimized for so many nodes who keep the, uh, running the network and keeping the network secure. And that means that when you get up to a certain, we call it saturation, so how much um, ADA is actually staked in a pool, when you get up to a certain level, we cap it. And if you have more than that, you're actually negatively incentivized um, for doing that. So we are constantly learning but also applying game theory aspects to ensure that we can actually really talk about uh, decentralization, that we can really talk about putting power to the edges, that uh, you know a, a central player like a huge exchange or like a central bank or like a, one of the world's largest companies, as you spoke about it, will not have a great you know, value add. Another thing which where we really had deep thoughts was when we think about the security aspect, can it really be so that you need to have a special computer and you have to have a PhD and you have to have access to radiant lines and certain kind of electricity power to basically be able to, to run a business by securing the network? So actually on Cardano, you can, you can run two Raspberry Pis, which is these super cheap uh, mini computers, and you can run a full node and you can participate in the network and you can earn rewards and you can actually kind of build a business as you are learning. So you were in the, in the intro talking about Ada and Ada Lovelace, right? So uh, we actually have something called the Lovelace Academy, which is uh, for female um, tech enthusiasts on Cardano. And uh, what I think is great is not just that we have that, uh, which incentives more females to come into the tech space, but also the fact that, you know, by having two Raspberry Pis, which is, you know, in many countries still a lot of money, but it's a very low entry barrier to basically start, you know, getting an income and earning money and getting an education on blockchain. And that's what we really want to get that to, right? We are using game theory aspects of getting to a place where wherever you are in the world, even though you don't have the money for university costs, you can start engaging with Cardano and you can start learning blockchain. And if you're then at a later stage, I hope not, but in a later stage figure out you want to jump to another blockchain, that's actually fine because everything we do is open source. So we share what we do. Uh, but it also means that we don't have any hard feelings if you end up in a project, uh, you know, on, on another uh, protocol, because many of the leading protocols out there is actually already being inspired by what Cardano is doing in terms of research um, and in terms of uh, our uh, Ouroboros and which is our consensus uh, mechanism and, and other of the key architecture parts which we have. So I think there's a couple of, that's just two, let's say, fairly easy examples. I know they still get a little bit techy, huh? but uh, but fairly easy examples on, on where we apply game theory. That's right. I mean, so, I mean, ADA is is the, the way really probably of a lay person participating in this. Um, it's quite interesting, your proof of stake, the way it works. I think uh, it's tried to, to go against some of the problems of um, of the rich getting richer, which is what some proof of stake does, you know, the ability for smaller users to pull 
sweepstakes. That's an interesting innovation. And probably most importantly, I think for, for green-minded, environmentally mm. conscious uh, crypto investors, which you know, a lot of people have put off Bitcoin by the amount of energy, the proof of work takes. Um, it's, it's, so it's quite interesting just to learn a little bit more about, about um, ADA as, as the way um, of having a stake in, in, in and participating in the project um, and also you know, some of the advantages around um, versus other proofs. Mm. Yeah, we can speak about ADA for a little bit, right? So what I really like about uh, ADA and is that, first of all, the entry barrier to buy ADA is very low, right? So when you actually have ADA, you don't only have a token, which can give you the ability to run some, um, you know, to participate in other things on chain, but you actually also have the ability to do what we call staking. Staking is basically the incentive that you can give um, an IOU to a, to a stake pool operator. A stake pool operator is a person who runs a full version of the node and keep securing the network and keep kind of, you know, adding everything into this beautiful magical Excel spreadsheet, which is in, in you know, the ledger. Um, so when you do that, you're actually already there kind of doing something. People would argue with me now, right? But that's already DeFi. So by doing that, you can get 10 to 15% in rewards, which looks and feel very much as a yield. So in many ways, you can think about it. If ADA doesn't move at all, and you, you pick uh, some stake pools, one or many, right? You can get, you know, a, a double-digit amount in yield on your ADA. And I think that's, uh, you know, first of all, that's super interesting. But again, this is another of these game theory aspects. Because what we're trying to do with this is that we're saying, okay, actually, we are not trying to incentivize people from buying and selling ADA. We're actually trying to incentivize people from choosing stake pool operators, which they either trust or which they see do something value-adding for the network. Or if you just want to optimize that towards that yield game, that, that kind of reward game, it's not a yield from a financial perspective, but it has the same cash flow pattern as a yield, right? Uh, you can do that. But even more importantly, and that's why, you know, the goosebump starts coming up your arm and you get right really excited. We already have 120 to 130,000 people, inhabitants on the Cardano blockchain who votes every eight, six to eight weeks on what we call Project Catalyst. So we have over $1 billion at the current ADA rate, which is going to be given out um, as a kind of a venture capital or charity investment on projects decided by the community. Now, we don't know yet what is the perfect governance model in the future. As you know, we have not launched Voltaire yet. But um, it is just extremely exciting that, you know, by owning a few ADA, you can go in on a platform and you can look at projects other people want to do on our platform, even things which is guiding the direction of the foundation and IRHK, and you can put your vote. And that basically will allow you not only to, here we use game theory again, so we are actually paying for voting, meaning we're giving a small economic incentive that you can actually, um, you know, for, by voting, you get a little bit, uh, earn some money because we've seen on some of the DeFi platforms that people don't use the voting power. And by that, you can move the project and you can give money out and you can communicate and interact. So if you see a project and you're like, actually, the idea is good, but the execution is bad. You can actually, or, you know, through the platform, interact with them and say, hey, I would like to bid into the project. I think you should change your idea a little bit. And that means that we get a lot of these feedback loops very early on going, right? Then we get the voting, which not only gives you a kind of a reward for voting, but it also gives you a voice and you can prove the voice and you can start steering the project even in these early stages. And I think that kind of makes it the world's largest, you know, government without an Asian state. 
uh, I might be wrong on this one, but uh, you know, with the small research I've been looking at, it, it certainly looks like that. And I think that is super exciting. Uh, and when we are going to get that right, and when the community really, you know, takes us up, the idea is really to to really run that out and in nearly everything we do to kind of have a, uh, you know, a Voltaire era where where the community is deciding on the main decisions and the hard forks and so on. And this is very different compared to, let's say, the Bitcoin voting model and so forth. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned two things there. You mentioned Voltaire, which is um, the fifth stage in the, in the, the, the Cardano project timeline. So, so they're all stages and named after um, so romantic poets. I think you've got Byron, Shelley, um, uh, Gargwin, who's a, a legendary computer program, bit of homage there. Um, guide, I think, and uh, then a, a Japanese poet, I believe, as well is 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 the name of the fourth stage. I, I can't can't remember his name. Um, and then the fifth one is um, is is Voltaire. Voltaire is the final governance stage, bringing it all together. Um, quite interested to talk through some of those stages in a second. But first off, just we can just go back to something. Is is you know that as it's the the reward for the stake, the the ADA the ADA coin. Um, do fluctuations in price on the open market do they do they have an effect on on that on on the direction of the project and you know that volatility and I think we mentioned before we started the call as well that one of the, the encouraging things for for ADA was um, there seemed to be a bit less of a of a sort of a beta effect from Bitcoin compared to some of the other assets which which uh, sold off seems to be moving a stronger correlation with Bitcoin um, this this project seems to be and uh, taking on a and value seems to be taking on a bit of its own life compared to Bitcoin, which uh, is another interesting aspect to it. Mm, true. So that was a big question, huh? Sorry, yeah, so, I got uh, carried away myself, sorry. Yeah, I know, I just got carried away before, right? So I, I owe you a lot of uh, a lot of carry away uh, hints here. Huh? So what really excites me at the moment um, is that we are seeing that we are getting less and less uncorrelated to Bitcoin. So for the people who's not that much into, you know, uh, you know, correlations, gamma, alpha, beta, and all these kind of banking terminology nonsense, right? What that basically means is that what we've seen is that when Bitcoin goes up, uh, some coins either drop with more or less the same proximity or the same amount of percentages as Bitcoin went up, or they go up with the same amount as Bitcoin went up. And what I think is very interesting uh, around the ADA at the moment is that uh, we're becoming nearly uncorrelated to Bitcoin. And that means that we really see the fruits of what we've been doing uh, by basically collecting this massive uh, community around Cardano as a project. Because I think we have around 1.5 million people who wake up every day and they think about Cardano. They might not be the first thing they do when they get out of the bed, but during the day they think about Cardano. And what that basically means by this uncorrelation is that our project is starting to get its own wipe is kind of trending a little bit away from the general crypto market. It's, and that's something we really like because we actually don't want to be competing against another coin or against another project. So we don't actually think about Ethereum 2.0 as necessarily being a, a competitor and then you want to, they need to be crushed and so on, right? We think about it like this. The, if you look at the operating systems of this world, there's thousands of those. Most of them just doesn't work. You know, if you look at, you know, central banks or banks or voting or whatever that might be, that identity, title registers, a lot of those things has been discussed a lot, but we know there's some inefficiency, right? And we know that certain countries just don't even have it. huh? They gave up on it because it's just too complex. So I think the, the, the point here was really important is there's so much room out there. And I think uh, some of us 
of the larger blockchain projects, we will get a lot of added value of you know joining forces on some of the more correlated matters, such as the regulatory clarity, the KYC and compliance clarity, uh, the education clarity. What you know you said earlier, you know, can you explain blockchain in two words, or can you explain you know Cardano in a sentence, and those kind of things. We, we need to get to a place where not the whole world understand what blockchain is because they shouldn't. They should just use it, right? But we need to get to a place where people understand that crypto is an application on a blockchain. And in the future, you will see multiple thousands of applications on the blockchain. You will see a world built on blockchain. And therefore, this that we start becoming uncorrelated to Bitcoin, which is very much a cryptocurrency is very interesting because that's kind of moving towards the vision of the Cardano project and it's moving towards really seeing enterprise value and understanding of the quality of what we are launching and, and the, where we are going. We still see a bit too much, you know, um, in my world, there's a bit too much uh, volatility, so movements, intraday mm. movements and so on. But I think the, the trend is your friend, as we say, right? And I think the fact is also that in the future, you'll most likely see tokens on the Cardano blockchain, which would be valued and have a larger market cap than the ADA. And, and I think that's very, very interesting when you kind of start thinking that through, right? Because how can you have a, a Cardano blockchain, a protocol, a social and financial operating system with the native currency of ADA, but now suddenly you can have other native currencies on our blockchain who is having a higher market cap or even higher transaction volume than the ADA. And that's because our system architecture is different. But it also means that we have there's a lot of openness and the combined value of the project certainly is a lot bigger even, right? So I think it's a where you look for competitors and where you look at comparisons is also very much around um, the play you're doing and the version of the world you're looking at. So, so how does that, that just going back to that volatility? How how does that affect sort of the um, the incentivization and the participation? You know, if if uh, if you know if, if if Ada is worth you know something one day and then a lot less the next, does that does that act as an impediment to to participation if people are doing it because they're doing it for financial rewards? So for so I mean the project is already very decentralized and you can see there's uh, you know a lot of projects building on it and we are. We are soon going to launch smart contracts. And since a week now, we have 1,500 developers sitting and ticking away at, at, at our test net for smart contracts, right? But in short, uh, I mean, if you want to force me to do one statement, it will probably be um, for the greater good of the project, the more stable the ADA price is, the better it is. I truly believe that. I know a lot of people who is thinking about ADA more as a, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, some kind of a, I wouldn't call it an investment, but some kind of, you know, I'm buying it and I'm looking at the project's value and so on, right? But that's not really where we want to get at. We want to get at a place where people are buying ADA because it has a utility to them. It, it makes sense to them. They can use it for something. Uh, they can create value by using ADA for doing something on the blockchain. And there we see that there's more and more use cases. Lately, there was, of course, this big NFT hype, so these non-fungible tokens. But we also see, you know, uh, supply chain companies coming on and, and basically securing uh, the whole supply chain on the Cardano blockchain, whether that being in the food industry or whether that being in, in wine or other industries. Uh, it really creates very nice ripple effects, and uh, we're very proud of doing that. Mm, yeah, so that's, um, that's great. The um, 
just just to just talk through some of the um the, the phases the the five um the five phases and obviously where you're aiming to get to um with with Voltaire being sort of the the final governance stage um uh you know, the 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 Gogan stage i think is 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 one of the interesting ones i think stage 3 is is uh, is about um decentralized apps being developed on the blockchain and, and your smart contracts i think your smart contracts are another unique um aspect to to the cardano project and be quite interested to know how they work as well mm. so um we are already in what we call the Gogan era and the Gogan era is um it's been misinterpreted by many journalists and many writers as saying, you know, the equivalent of, of Ethereum and smart contracts. Um, but right now, currently, you cannot do a, a classical smart contract from the Ethereum network on Cardano. And to be honest, you won't be able to do that in the future either. You're going to be able to do something which is much more beautiful, much more secure than what we see in the classical era of, of smart contracts to be. Um, so what we did is we actually went, you know, back to the to to, to academia, right, <laughs> and, and looked at, you know, if if we're going to, you know, not only have one million people interacting uh, on the blockchain, but we want to have one billion people interacting, um, what do we need to get right to get there? And a part of that is the architectural choice. So we've chosen to basically separate the computing power and the accounting power on the blockchain. What does that essentially mean? Well. The bookkeeping power, the transactions, you know, so when you're thinking about the value in the uh, in the lecture, they need to be there. It's really important. And so does a lot of metadata. Metadata is the story around the transaction, but it also holds part of the governance of the transaction. And this is really important in certain industries. Uh, actually, most industries is very important. And that's why very large companies like uh, SAP, uh, and Oracle Financial Systems and so on, they become the heart blood, the pumping heart of every company out there is the EIP system because that's where you get all of the information that's basically based on transactions or based on entries in some kind of a database. In blockchain, we call that a transaction. So, <clears throat> so what we are then going to launch here now in, in the next 90 days is the ability to do uh, smart contracts. We've chosen a different... Uh, coding language and some people would say actually that might be an Achilles for us because we've chosen a language which is very secure and you can mathematically prove it. So what does that mean? So normally when you write a computing program, uh, you know, a developer is looking at, at different, you know, functions and features which he wants to have in there, guided maybe from some lawyers or guided by some compliance persons and the business people and product owner and so on. And he gathers all of that in, you know, you know, thousands of lines of code. But when you then look at that code, the first thing you'll be looking at is like, oh, what is it actually supposed to do? And how do I ensure that it's going to do so? How do I figure out if there's any errors in the code? So any places where a comma is wrong or something goes into a circular thing. Or if you today are sending, you know, if you're being an average user and you're sending some money to a smart contract, um, how do you actually know that the money is going to do what it's supposed to do? So if you send $1,000 to a smart contract and it's supposed to go into an escrow account, how can you as a normal user actually be sure that it's doing that? Mm. I, so, I can't answer the question because mm. it will require that you are a computer developer and you look into the smart contracting <laughs> code and you understand it, right? So mm. what the approach we've chosen is that uh, we've chosen another language which is basically where we can mathematically prove those things. And I think this is very different than the, many of the approaches out there. It, it does make the thing a little bit more rigid. 
Um, it is still a full language, right? But it makes it a little bit more rigid in what you can do. And what we're then adding to that when we have the smart contracts is we're adding that you can get five entryways into the world of Cardano. So that's, that's, that, um, that does present perhaps a challenge moving to the next stage, which is the, the Beisho, who is he's the Japanese poet. Uh, Beisho, um, it, it's, uh, it's, the, um, it's, it's the scalability stage at that point. Um, yeah. And that's interesting on two levels because one is, um, is something to grow big. There's, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful idea of, of decentralization. But um, how do people ultimately make money out of this getting scalable? Um, and you know, even if, if you know, ultimately you don't see sort of trading ADA as a way of, of making of, of you know making money out of this project, is it going to be? Um, is it sort of you know, people going to buy into companies that are using your blockchain to improve their own operations, possibly uh, on the on the sort of this decentralized network? Um, I mean, how do people who are who are invited, minded of being investors in this technology, how do they identify who are going to be sort of the, the picks and shovel companies, if you like, in this revolution? Even if you're providing the, the facility, um, you know, what, what do people look for in, in terms of who's using your blockchain well? So for me, uh, um, as the CEO of the Cardano Foundation, what I keep hammering in to everybody who want to listen mm. is that if you look at success in a blockchain, you should look at what are people willing to spend which is not a surprise right so it cannot be like where the gas fee suddenly goes to 900 dollars and it costs you more to unwind your position that your actually position is worth and so on right but in in, in cardano's world is really looking like this right it is the average value of ada per transaction measured in ada if that goes up that means that we're doing something right and the way i'm looking at it is this the transaction fee is two components. One is a flat fee, so A, and one is a variable fee. And actually, I would be honest and say we should only look at the variable fee, the B. But that's not. It's very hard to dissect on the blockchain. So therefore, you at the moment we have to look at the full transaction fee. But what you should be looking at is the B. The reason why this is important is the more bytes you put into B, the more you pay for usage. So if you send one ADA or you send ten thousand ADA, you nearly pay the same transaction fee. But if you add a smart contract to that or you add metadata to that, so the story around the transaction or a digital validator or a digital identity, a DIT or decentralized identity like in Ethiopia and now also coming in other countries, um, then you pay a bit more for the transaction. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we are moving away from the the first use case, the cryptocurrency use case, and we're not moving away from it. We're staying with it, but we are adding to our portfolio enterprise value, government value, Charity value, business value, right? And where we need to get to is that that you know wherever you are in the world, you can build a business, and you can ensure that this business is trusted by putting that or part of the business functions on something like the Cardano blockchain. And I think that's very important. And if you think about the political landscape, there's this discussions in many circles. Will we get to a world where everything is robots and people are not needed anymore and we will have a universal basic income? Or should we get to a world where everybody is, you know, engaged and motivated to being creative, to build businesses, to build services, to make social impact, right? Um, we are very much on the latter one, right? We want to ensure that, we don't think the human brain is wired just to sit back and, and, and get some money and, and, and watch Netflix. The, I think the human brain is wired as a social animal to interact, to create impact, 
to create a reason for living. And therefore, we need infrastructure who brings us together as a human race. And all of that goes back into that little tiny thing, the B. So yeah. when the transaction fee due to the B, the amount of bytes is increasing, right, on the ADA platform, but that basically means that people are looking at, the people are buying to get utility out of the system. And the more we do of that, the more we get on the right way as the Cardano Foundation. That's uh, lovely, but obviously there's a lot of actors probably uh, are threatened by decentralization. I think it's fair to say. I mean, we, we've seen um, uh, yeah, the, the, the Chinese government has uh, stomped on uh, on sort of on decentralized uh, efforts for decentralization in their jurisdiction. Um, I think that there's probably uh, you know there is a regulatory risk for a project such as yours. I mean, how are you how are you mitigating that risk? And uh, and you know what what are the, the potential issues that you see in order to get where you want to do to, to get to get that progress to get to the the full Voltaire stage where mm-hmm. you know this is being adopted and you're driving humanity forward. So Voltaire would not be the last stage of of the Cardano project. This would just be um, let's say the 1.0 of the project. So many people think we already launched and we are fully launched, and we are. You can do a lot with us, right? But we think about Cardano 1.0 as ending with Voltaire. And we're already drawing up the roadmap together with our community about Cardano 2.0 or Cardano 2025. In short, I, I think, you know, we are interacting with governments, with regulators, um, with enterprises every single day to try and educate them, but also try and understand what is actually needed from your viewpoint to build that bridge into the existing society that you feel comfortable by using decentralized architecture. Because mathematically, we can prove that it makes sense. But if the brain and the risk willingness of the organizations doesn't follow that, then we haven't won. The best technology doesn't win. That's, we've seen that over and over again, right? And what is really interesting, if you speak about Byron, for instance, we talk about the scalability. We're looking at maybe getting up to 1 million transactions per second, right? That's what we're looking at when we think about the scalability of transactions, right? But... That's not that interesting if you do everything in open source because it means that every other blockchain project or the other project out there, they can basically take our research and take our source code and implement that again, right? So what you really need to think about is the, is the community, is the reach of the community and the understanding of the community. So the more the community can start taking decisions, crowd decisions, the more we can engage the community out there to put blockchain in the engine room, not in the front office, but the engine room of businesses and, and change the trust level. That's also why we're very engaged with Catalyst. The more we will see this adoption and the more we can kind of cut away the focus that the blockchain is only crypto, but blockchain is also crypto, is, ex- is an extremely important move. And that's why we are so much focused on also ensuring that that the crypto will be regulated in the right way and we do whatever we can from education to a little bit of lobbying to, you know, uh, you know, when government's coming out and asking, you know, we want to do this new bill and we are answering that to, uh, to showing what's possible. So showing the art of the possible. Uh, but, um, but we also kind of engage on another level because if you'd be sitting in a country like India and India bans cryptocurrencies, but did they then also ban decentralization? Because what is the entryway into a decentralized marketplace? Well, that is very often that you have to pay a gas fee or you have to pay a, an ADA to use the decentralized network. But if you can't do that because of a ban, you kind of, 
you know, you kind of took a, a, a line in the sand and basically said, well, you know, large company or population in India, you you not only can you not do cryptocurrencies, but you can also not use a decentralized brain, which allows you to run an infrastructure where you can, you know, add value from thousands of oracles and, and input in one database and actually trust it. And and I think that's a that's a slippery road, uh, which is um, is something we are fighting every day. Um, and that's also why we are kind of a bit scared about certain development when you see, you know, one person on Twitter says something and the whole market moves and so on, because then we get a focus on consumer protection of an asset class and not a focus on what kind of innovation enables blockchain and what is the changes of the trust equation we get out of blockchain. Excellent. Well, so there's, uh, uh, there's quite a, an interesting interplay then going on between people who are going to be looking uh, to invest and people who are looking to develop technology. Um, and the overlap would be fascinating. Thank you ever so much, uh, Frederick, for your, your time today. It's been really fascinating talking to you. And uh, I'm sure that uh, it'll be very interesting to follow the project going forward. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 